welcome to Destination History, where we tackle interesting and fascinating places and take a stroll through the history behind them. Unlike many famous artists, the cameo in today's story was recognised as a wonder while alive, but he was horrible with his money. This is the story of his house. Join me as we take a look at today's destination, Rembrandt House. Today's journey starts in 1606 with the construction of what would become, in time, Rembrandt's house. And just in case you forgot when the thing was built, it's got the date printed on the front in gold so you really can't miss it. The neighbourhood was pretty diverse at the time, basically full of artists, and was known as the Jewish quarter of the city. The house itself was pretty wide, taking up two lots, and was two storeys with a steep gable. The original owner was a Peter Belton from Antwerp. He had supposedly bought the house off a Hans van der Voort, and he wasted no time in making improvements, making it larger out the back and even having a gallery added to the inner courtyard. Once Belton passed away though, his children, who thought quite a fair bit of themselves, decided the house just wasn't cutting it. And so, in 1627, they brought in Jacob van Kampen, who was a pretty fancy architect himself, going on later to be the architect of the Amsterdam Town Hall, which you might know today as the Palace in Dam Square. Van Kampen went about modernising the house and updating the facade, adding a triangular corniced pediment, which was pretty flash at the time, and adding a third storey. This facade is actually what we see today. Christopher Tice and Peter Belton de Onger, known as the sole heirs of Peter Belton de Older, liked to think of themselves as nobility and so really forked out on the renovation. The hilarious thing about this is that while the remodeling was going on, everyone who made the area a desirable place to live pretty much all moved to a newer part of the city. It was so quick, it was like they all planned it and Belton's kids didn't get the memo. So this house that they had basically rebuilt, all of a sudden, wasn't really of that much interest to them. Sitting in the now unpopular, medieval part of the city, the housing market dipped quite dramatically and Belton's kids were keen to sell. The house, which had originally sat on St. Antonis Bristrat, went on the market in the 1620s and pretty much stayed there for a while. Just an aside on the street names, Breestrut is the Dutch for Broad Street, and is already established as a pretty wealthy neighbourhood with a strong Jewish population. Since Rembrandt's time, the street name has changed to Hodenbreestrut, and today the house can be found at number four. So while Belton's house was still on the market, Rembrandt was wandering around looking for a workshop where he could paint. He'd just been commissioned to work on what became known as one of his well-known paintings, The Night Watch. Naturally, he wanted something that reflected his new social standing. He'd gotten married to quite the socialite, in fact she was the daughter of the city's mayor, and was invited to some pretty flash social circles because of the success he was enjoying from his paintings and engravings. He may have splurged a little too much on the house, but we'll hear more about that a little later. Rembrandt was born in the right time, 
who was a gifted artist in the middle of Amsterdam that was enjoying a period of amazing culture. And to top it off, he was appreciated in his own time, able to make a living from his art. So much so that he was able to buy a house that had been sitting on the market for years at an unrealistic price. At the time, the neighbourhood was filled with artist types. You might even go so far as to call it hipster. Basically, it was filled with A-list artists like Peter Lastman, who was actually Rembrandt's teacher, Nicholas Elias Picknoy, Peter Coder, and Nicholas Van Bambeck, even had his house across the road. So, in 1639, Rembrandt, aged 33, bought the house for 13,000 guilders, which was actually a ridiculous amount of money at the time. But Rembrandt was flying high and decided that only the best would do for himself and his wife, Saskia van Heilenburg. Rembrandt moved in and was initially pretty comfortable. He was getting some commissions from some pretty high people and was producing quality work, some of which you can see today in the world-famous Rijksmuseum, including the Night Watch, the Hundred Gilder Print, the Three Trees and the Three Crosses. You might know that Amsterdam is quite similar to Venice in that it is a canal city. Basically, Amsterdam was built on a swamp, and with their ingenious damming solutions, the Dutch were able to build an entire city. But as it turned out, Rembrandt's house was a bit of a rush job. Before a house is built, the marshy soil is squished down and prepared to take the weight of a house for centuries. But Rembrandt's house was built too soon, and the soil hadn't had time to settle properly. You might have seen examples of the soil moving around with houses moving and leaning. The cost to get some extra support under the foundations and repair the damage was going to be pretty pricey, and Rembrandt just couldn't afford it on his own. But his neighbour, who was in the same position with a leaning house, decided he was going to pay the costs in 1653. But Rembrandt was standing his ground and was dead set against being a part of anything to do with supporting his home despite sharing an entire wall with his neighbour. But that still didn't really help Rembrandt out about not paying the bills because he was asked to pay the bill concerning the common wall anyway. But the reason Rembrandt didn't want to shore up the house wasn't because he loved living in a sinking home, it was because he'd stretched himself too far and actually couldn't afford it. He was struggling so much with money that in 1649, he was forced to stop paying the instalments on the house And it was also in 1653 that a bill was sent asking him to catch up. Unfortunately, Rembrandt would never catch up and would eventually have to declare bankruptcy. Which is really weird because Rembrandt was going great guns with his art. He was producing massive amounts of paintings, drawings and etchings and he had pupils coming round to be taught by him. But Rembrandt was a passionate collector pretty much turning the house into a massive cabinet of curiosities. He had all sorts of rarities lying around. But things started getting hard. Tastes surrounding paintings and drawings started to change. Rembrandt had spent big on his house and building his collection, and so didn't have a whole lot left over in the savings account. Rembrandt also wasn't having the best time. Three years after moving in, his wife had passed away from tuberculosis, and of their four kids, only one survived to adulthood, but Titus wasn't that lucky, 
he didn't get the chance to outlive his father. So Rembrandt officially declared bankruptcy in 1658. I imagine this wasn't one of his finest moments, but it's turned out to be pretty handy for those of us living in the future, because when he declared bankruptcy, the creditors made a detailed inventory of his possessions. Every single thing that Rembrandt owned was put on the list in an effort to cover the massive debt Rembrandt had stacked up, which turned out to be roughly 11,000 guilders, basically the cost of a house. In the same year, Rembrandt was forced to move out of his home. He ended up living in a much smaller house on Rochengracht and didn't move again until he died. Rembrandt's new house was nothing like his old one. It was in a different district of Amsterdam, one without so much history. And this new house was eventually demolished in the 19th century. But this spot wasn't forgotten. If you wander past, you'll see a commemorative plaque acknowledging the grace of his presence. It was in 1660 to 1662 that the house's foundations were finally supported and the house was actually split into two houses. For the 250 years after Rembrandt, there were numerous owners that came and went. Eventually, the city council bought the house with the idea of giving it to the Rembrandt Foundation. The house ended up being changed a couple times and it sort of looked a bit worse for wear although one of the new owners did add the upper story and replace the roof, giving us the facade that we see today. It's pretty amazing that the house is still standing, and it could actually be put down to the fact that Rembrandt lived there, that the house hasn't been knocked down, not like his other house, that really didn't have any luck. It was in 1911 that what was once Rembrandt's house opened as a museum to the great artist himself. Earlier, in 1906, after the city of Amsterdam had bought the rundown house on Hodenbrestraat, the city actually handed over the house to the foundation set up for remembering the painter. The foundation initially wanted to restore the house to how Rembrandt had it in the 17th century, but things really didn't go to plan, and they ended up just going with cleaning it up and throwing in a couple things for historical reference. The interiors were made to look as much like how Rembrandt had it as was financially possible. They were able to do this because when Rembrandt declared bankruptcy, there was that inventory of everything he owned. So we actually know quite a good deal about how Rembrandt had set up the house and his workshop. And under the supervision of KPC de Basel, this has been replicated as much as possible. They even managed to add in a collection of his prints. The restoration was ready in 1911 and it fell to Queen Wilhelmina to open the museum on the 10th of June. The Rembrandt House Museum, or Museet Rembrandthus, actually has a complete overview of Rembrandt's work, including the largest collection of his etchings, consisting of 260 of the 280. It was actually the painter Jean Veth, one of the board members of the Rembrandt Foundation, who led the way to bring the collection together, with donations coming from around the world, including the Rijksmuseum down the road. He thought it would be only fitting for the etchings to be displayed in the house in which they were made. Even though they're 30 shy from having a complete collection, the house also includes furniture and objects from the 17th century, including a couple of the rarities he may have kept in the cabinet room. During the Germans' occupation of Amsterdam in May 1940, 
the etchings and drawings that made up the collection were hidden in the cellar. They stayed there until 1944, when floods threatened to destroy them. The collection was then moved to a safer spot above ground. They didn't move again until the Allies arrived. Reopening after the war in 1945, getting back into things meant that money was tight, and donations and acquisitions pretty much slowed to a stop. But as things started to ramp back up, by 1982, a massive bequeathment arrived with about 40 etchings. As the collection started to fill out, being able to find outstanding pieces of work was starting to become difficult. In 1993, though, four original etching plates were offered to the museum for sale. The plates had been living in the collection of the prince seller Clement de Onga, who supposedly got the plates straight from Rembrandt himself. Even though a majority of the collection at the Rembrandt House Museum is made up of Rembrandt's work, there is a small collection by his teacher, pupils, and even his friends. Some of the most notable pieces of work are by Jan Lievens and Johannes van Vliet, which both worked closely with the main man himself. But the museum didn't stop with people who were just associated with Rembrandt. They've stretched their wings and have started collecting pieces by artists who were influenced by Rembrandt, including German and Austrian artists like Christian Wilhelm Dietrich and George Friedrich Schmidt, who were around during the 18th century. Moving into more modern times, major developments were carried out in the 1990s. The foundation managed to nab the building next door and set to work with a massive renovation which would result in it becoming an extension to the original museum. The new and quite modern-looking annex was opened on the 7th of May 1998, with eye-catching exterior design by Moche Zwartz and Ryan Jansma, and the interior sorted by Peter Sass. The new addition includes two exhibition galleries, offices, a library, a secretarial department and, of course, the Rembrandt Information Centre. With two buildings now making up the museum, it meant that all the fluff that make up the museum's collection that weren't actually in Rembrandt's house when he was a tenant could be moved over to the new wing, leaving the original house open to being restored to its original Rembrandt condition. As there always is with these kinds of things, a massive debate raged on about the ethics surrounding historic buildings. But in the end, the foundation was able to get started on their restoration. The restoration team was led by building historian Hank Zankujul, who's very conveniently an expert in 17th century houses. Hank devised a plan that drew heavily on what we know of the 17th century and their buildings. So in order to get the building and the interior as accurate as possible, our lovely little friend, Rembrandt's bankruptcy inventory, came in very handy. Basically, it laid out the entire floor plan of where each piece of furniture would go and the use of each room. Luckily for the team, Rembrandt helped them out by doing some drawings of spots around the house, aiding even more in reconfiguring the restoration. When it came down to the important drawings, like those of structure, architect Martin Nerix came to the rescue, with the Neppers and Midreth firms carrying out the heavy work and the restoration of the house back to its 17th century version was complete in 1999. The reconstruction that you can see in the Rembrandt House Museum is actually a pretty cool representation of Rembrandt's every day. You can wander around and see where he lived and where he worked. As you walk through the house and then into the newer part of the museum, 
you'll see not only collections of Rembrandt's work, but also some pretty cool exhibitions by other Dutch artists that were around in the Golden Age. When in the house, you'll get a pretty good sense of how Rembrandt lived, and how people lived in general in the 17th century. One thing that I found absolutely fascinating is the teeny tiny beds they had. Supposedly, this was due to a fear of blood rushing to your head when lying down. So the 17th century population all slept sitting up. They would have loved trying to sleep on a plane in economy. Naturally, the largest room is Rembrandt's studio, but you can wander through his kitchen, living room and workshop. If you're around at the right time, you can even see some really cool demonstrations of how Rembrandt would have made some of his etchings and how he would have mixed his pigments to make paint. Absolutely fascinating. The museum doesn't just limit itself to anything Rembrandt or Rembrandt-affiliated. The newer part of the museum even has some extra rooms and spaces for lectures, public workshops, functions and even some educational facilities. 2017 was a pretty exciting year for the museum. Two paintings were discovered to have been Rembrandt originals and were added to the collection. Initially, the paintings, which are Portrait of Petronella Byers and Man with Sword, were thought to have had one of Rembrandt's assistants or students as its artist. But after further analysis, it was actually found that Rembrandt himself painted them. I can't tell you exactly how they came to this conclusion, especially when it mustn't be that obvious because they didn't even think he'd painted them until recently. It's thought that these two were more of a rush job, and that's why they were misattributed. 2019 was the 350th anniversary of Rembrandt's death, which when you think about it is actually quite a long time. For the house to still be standing and Rembrandt's etching collection to almost have been reacquired is quite the feat. If you're interested in discovering more about Rembrandt and his house museum, head on over to the Rembrandt House website and you'll see what I mean about how cool it is. If you had fun and feel as if you learned something, give us a subscribe and a review. And even if you didn't learn anything or even like us, give that button a click anyway. You can find us by searching Destination History in all your major social media platforms, podcast providers and Google. When you subscribe, you'll get an update for any new episodes coming your way so you won't miss out on any exciting Destination Historical content. As always, all links spoken about, images, resources used and way more can be found on our website at destinationhistorypod.com. And if you have a building, place or area of significance that you would like to learn more about, shoot through an email or a message and I'll see if I can cover it in its very own episode here on Destination History. See you next episode.